They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are very much diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 hours or 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head, one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 43, The Scout's Story. John Jick, 37, thin, 5 foot 7 to 5 foot 8, a well-kept man, short hair, fair hair, a professional man. Goes missing in February 1969, vanishes into thin air, never to be seen again. And in relation to Fred, that's interesting. He's from the Isle of Man, and I'm pretty sure that the Isle of Man dental records would not have been included in the dental record search conducted by the police in their early investigation into Fred. And I've not yet seen anything that counts John Jick out. Some people will say the teeth don't match, but we'll come to that later. But somehow, we need to keep working on John Jick, trying to understand more about him. Even if he turns out not to be Fred, there's something very strange going on in relation to the disappearance of John Jick. And of course, there's still just a chance that he does turn out to be Fred. But how do we continue? We've been through all the newspapers, we've studied every record there is in relation to this case. Surely, we've reached the end of the road on John Jick. But that's precisely where the power of the Fred community always seems to deliver. I got a message from Anne Sutton Whiteside, who lives near Chicago, Illinois, in the US. A, have you seen this message? And what Anne had found was this. A Facebook page for the first Douglas Scout Group in the Isle of Man a historical record of that scout group, the same scout group that John Jick was a member of. But more than that, there are pictures showing John Jick from 1960, 1959, 1966. In the October 1960 picture showing John Jick, he's smartly dressed at the front of a group of scouts. But there are more photos of him. Sometimes, He's not even mentioned as being in that photo, but I know John Jick's face now. I can spot him in a crowd. So now, not only did I have undiscovered contemporaneous pictures of John Jick throughout the 1960s, I also potentially had access to people who knew John, who knew his personality. He, they knew him physically. They knew what he sounded like. I just needed to get hold of them. But with a sensitive subject like this, the mysterious death of a well-loved scoutmaster, getting people to open up to a stranger, me, who's also a non-manxman, well, that might prove to be difficult. But 
and Sutton Whiteside had shown us the door. It was up to me to try to open it and walk through it. And we did. And it yielded more than I expected. Not only people who knew John Jick, not only people who were with him on that ill-fated journey to Liverpool, but eventually to the person who was John Jick's second in command on that trip. The person that John Jick left the scouts with when he returned to Liverpool and vanished into thin air. And I spoke at length with this man, who asked to remain anonymous, and that's fine, but he was able to provide a great deal more information about John Jick and exactly how that trip to Liverpool played out. And he revealed information that's not in the public domain about what happened before that trip, what happened on that trip, and what happened after John Jick's disappearance. So I spoke with someone on whom this trip had made a very lasting impression. A man now in his 60s, but who as a teenager had been the second in command on this fateful trip to Liverpool on which John Jick had disappeared. This man asked for anonymity, which I'm very, very happy to respect. I asked him about the trip. I asked him about John Jick, the man. What was he like? What was he like physically? What was he like as a personality? And although this man wasn't in John Jick's company for years, he knew him for around a year. He was in regular contact with him, so he would have met John Jick many, many times over the course of the final year of John Jick's life. Physically, he said he was thin. That's the thing that comes most easily to mind. And he seemed older than the pictures that circulated after his disappearance. He was of below average height, but he was smart, neat, short hair, skinny, narrow face. I asked about his teeth specifically. He doesn't remember anything unusual about them, not crooked or unusual in any way, normal and straight. So what about John Jick as a person, as a man? What was his character like? Well, he said he could be obstinate, could be brusque even, he had his very precise way of doing things. And he could be very firm. You didn't argue with him. He was in charge. And you knew he was in charge. So we talked about the trip. The boat had docked around 1pm. John Jick had brought his car with him. It was free for him to do so because he worked for the Isle of Man Steam Packet Company, the ferry operator. The group of scouts of which there were around 12, travelled immediately to Birkenhead on the underground system that links Liverpool and Birkenhead. John Jick drove. He drove his mini estate that he had brought with him. But he drove alone. He didn't take any of the boys with him. So they met up at this Borough Road Scout headquarters in Birkenhead. The plan had been for all the group to go back to Liverpool and do some sightseeing in Liverpool. I mean, they were from the Isle of Man, they enjoyed coming to Liverpool, the whole group was gonna go back and then return back to Birkenhead for the evening gang show. So they were just gonna drop the things off in Birkenhead, 
get back to Liverpool and then come back to Birkenhead for the gang show. And then the intention was to sleep at the Borough Road Scout headquarters after the gang show and return to the Isle of Man the next day. But on arrival in Birkenhead, that plan changed. John Jick announced that he needed to go back to Liverpool alone to return a book that he'd previously purchased. Now that confused people, as the plan was for the group to go to Liverpool anyway. But John Jick was insistent, and he was the senior person. No, you lads, wait for me. I'm going back to Liverpool to return this book. I'll be back shortly, and then we'll all go to Liverpool. It doesn't sound very logical. What we do know, by the way, is that John Jick visited the house of a Mrs. Cofftree, the wife of the producer of the gang show in Birkenhead. He had a cup of tea with her and then left, presumably to drive through the Mersey Tunnel to Liverpool. So, the second in command was left with the other scouts at Borough Road, awaiting John's return. But of course, John didn't return. And remember, these are the days long before mobile phones to contact people. They were just sitting there waiting for John to come back, but he never came back. So eventually they made their own way to Liverpool and their own way back in time for the gang show. And on arrival back in Birkenhead later that afternoon, they realised that John Jick still hadn't returned from Liverpool. So second in command, the man we're talking to now had a bit of an issue. He'd been left as a 17-year-old with 12 scouts to look after. But fortunately, the abandoned scout group met up with a familiar face, Arthur Fenn, who happened to be travelling to Birkenhead to see the gang show. Arthur Fenn was able to support the second-in-command as it became increasingly clear that something unusual had taken place and that John Jick was in fact missing. Police were called and the investigation into what happened to John Jig began. The party travelled back to the Isle of Man the following day, leaving John and John's car behind. But as the mystery deepened, John Jig didn't reappear, and concern for John Jig intensified. Police made contact with the second-in-command to go through all of the details of the visit just to check exactly what had happened and what the timeline had been. And in the course of that questioning, certain things emerged that the police seemed to know about John Jick's lifestyle. The police believed John Jick had visited Liverpool a number of times before, maybe many times. That makes sense. He had free passage on the Isle of Man steam packet. But the police believed that John Jick was a gay man and that certain hotels may have been associated with John Jick's previous stays in Liverpool. He remembers these hotels being called the Feathers Hotel or the George, maybe the St George Hotel. These were places the police mentioned to the second in command. In those days, our man was pretty naive, he was a teenager, didn't really realise that homosexuality was even a thing. But later, other people suggested that they had suspected that John may have been gay. 
So those are the recollections of John Jick's second in command on that fateful visit to Liverpool and Birkenhead when John goes missing. That conversation with the second in command led me to another person. He put me in contact with the second person who knew John, not so much in the scouts, but as a kind of a work colleague. He occasionally went to the Isle of Man steam packet and would have conversations with John Jick. So he remembered John Jick well over many years. And again, the physical description. Five foot seven to five foot eight. Mousy brown to fair hair. Short hair. Hands long and thin he was a very slightly built man now he would see John quite regularly at the Isle of Man steam packet head office when he was making deliveries and they would chat so he'd had plenty of conversations with John Jick I asked specifically about John Jick's teeth does he remember anything about them I didn't lead him on that he said no absolutely normal straight teeth nothing unusual that I can remember at the time no one had been aware that John Jick had been gay but later rumours emerged and remember in the Isle of Man it was still punishable by the courts to be gay and it would be for another 20 years if you were gay and living in the Isle of Man you did not talk about it but he remembers people saying later, I didn't know he was that way inclined. And I think we know what they meant by that. So it was emerging after the disappearance that John Jick was in fact a gay man. In fact, his boss at the Isle of Man steam packet may also have been gay. I think there was a connection there. These days, of course, it doesn't matter in the slightest if people are gay. We're not concerned about things like that anymore. But in 1969, on the Isle of Man, it mattered a lot. Being outed risked your career, your reputation, and your liberty. So a slightly different picture is emerging of John Jick. A man with perhaps already very well-established contacts in the Liverpool or Wirral area and Liverpool was a much more open society much more cosmopolitan than the Isle of Man a place where John could express himself as the man he was without many of the risks associated with being gay on the Isle of Man but he couldn't do that with 12 scouts in tow whatever it was he needed to do and it wasn't to take a book back he needed to do that alone what was it and who was it with now we know he was assaulted at 5 p.m in liverpool now that's slightly weird because that's very late doesn't fit in well with the plan to return to birkenhead then go over to liverpool with the group and then have enough time to return for the gang show whatever john was up to in liverpool he wasn't fitting in with the timeline he'd said to that group of scouts that was going to happen but obviously, things went very wrong for John Gick. And when they did go wrong, who did he call? Who did he seek help from? Because it wasn't the police. And it is likely, I think, given the number of times it seems that John Gick had visited Liverpool 
and perhaps what we know now about his lifestyle, that he did have a network of people in the Liverpool or Wirral area that he could call on in times of distress. Thanks for listening to the podcast, particularly if you're a new listener. Welcome to the Fred family, wherever you are in the world. Now, I have an announcement. On Saturday, the 2nd of September, we are intending to have our first Fred meetup in Burton. In fact, at Burton Town Hall. And we'll have a chance to talk through the case, a chance to visit some of the key places in and around Burton. And as Burton is the beer capital of the world, we'll be able to talk Fred into the early hours, probably ending up quite well lubricated. So if you're on Facebook, I announced that a couple of days ago, but I know many listeners are not on Facebook, so I wanted to ensure everybody who listens to the podcast was aware of that date, Saturday the 2nd of September. Now, don't book any travel arrangements yet. I should hopefully be able to confirm everything in the next 24 hours with Burton Town Hall, where we're going to have that meetup. But it should be a fun day. So if you are listening and want to attend, drop me an email to fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. That's fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com, and I can send you all of the information. A quick shout out to our new listeners, particularly Grace and Alfie, who I know listen to the podcast. And a big thank you to Anne Sutton-Whiteside for her detective work that definitely pushed things forward in this episode. So, hopefully, I look forward to seeing you on the 2nd of September. All of the team will be there as well, Ian, Magdalena, Joe, and myself. And also Helen Knight, who's the reporter from the Burton Mail, who for so long single-handedly kept this story alive when no one else did. So I'm very much looking forward to Saturday the 2nd of September. Now this week we also received some sad news. David Nathan, the man who found Fred, died a couple of weeks ago. I met David a few times and had a number of long telephone conversations with him over the last few years. You, in fact, would have heard the recording of my first ever conversation with him. That's at the end of episode one. From the first, he was always polite, friendly and helpful. And I know that being the man that found Fred was a bit of a burden. One that I did absolutely nothing to help because I was dragging it all back up again after many years when it had all been forgotten. But once his initial suspicion had been assuaged, he was always very keen to help. He had a genuine desire, I think, to find out the name of the person and the circumstances that lay behind the death of Fred. But I wanted to place on record my appreciation to David for his patience and my heartfelt condolences to his wife and his family. And I only hope that wherever he is now, he knows who Fred is. Some may question his actions at the time of the discovery of the body, and it's very easy in hindsight. But I always believed David simply had the misfortune to be the one who found Fred. Anyone could have found Fred, it just so happened to be David Nathan, and that was the extent of his involvement 
in the case. But it also shows just how vital it is that we got his account recorded when we did. David's sad death is another reminder that time is running out to solve this mystery. Now, back to the story. There's a couple of things I wanted to draw out of what's emerging about John Jick's last few hours, if, in fact, they were his last few hours. We don't quite know that yet. But first, I wanted to talk about his teeth. There's a lot of physical evidence that connect John Jick to being Fred. Build, height, hair length, hair colour, thin hands, facial simulation. And, of course, he went missing at exactly the right time and was never found. And we have a body that matches all of those things. But even all that is nowhere near enough to prove that John Jick is Fred. I'd be the first to say that. All it does is make him a possibility, no more than that. But it is great that 50 years later, we even have discovered a possibility. Now, there are others who rule him out and they do it on the basis of his teeth. In some photographs, his teeth appear crooked. Now, one of the things I've been able to do since the last episode is to find more photos of John Jick. Some appear to have perfectly straight teeth. The thing is, I don't think it's conclusive. And remember, the witnesses who knew him that we've heard from today both said he appeared to have normal straight teeth. Now, neither of those two people are dentists, but they had many close-up conversations with him. Fortunately, we do know an actual dentist, one I've developed a lot of faith in, Josefina Naj. She always tells me exactly what she thinks. She doesn't change her point of view because she thinks I want a different answer. She won't do that. And that, for me, is extremely valuable. She's ruled out many people on both the cases we're working on, Fred and the gentleman. So I sent her all of the photos that I'd gathered in the last couple of weeks of John Jick. And this is her view. And experience has taught me to be guided by her. And she's looking at the teeth and to a degree the underbite situation. And she says this. On the balance of probability of the photos, I would say Fred is unlikely to be John Jick, but without better photos or dental records, it's impossible to eliminate him completely. That's really clear. Unlikely, but not impossible. So let's not eliminate John Jick on the basis of a couple of 60-year-old photographs, or equally rule him in, because Think of the consequences of getting that wrong. If we rule him out on the basis of a dodgy photo from 1962, he's gone forever. And what happens if that photo was unreliable for some reason, shadows or lighting? And he is Fred. We've missed the victim forever. So my position is this. There are many matches between John Jick and Fred, and they lie in the positive column of the balance sheet. The teeth currently count in the negative column. 
but nothing currently proves John Jick is Fred or disproves John Jick is Fred. John Jick remains a possibility and whilst he remains a possibility we've got to dig even further into that story. Some final thoughts as we leave episode 43. There are a couple of things. Firstly, I'm starting to think about the car. It was found at Prince's Landing Stage on the River Mersey. It's one of Liverpool's main ferry terminals, taking local ferries to the Wirral as well as ferries to the Isle of Man. It's a place that John Jick would have known very well. And it's commonly known as the Pier Head in Liverpool. And it's less than a 10 minute walk away from James Street station on the underground, close to where John Jick was assaulted in those toilets. Blood was found in the car, but this is where it gets a little bit curious. There were bloodstains in the car on the front passenger seat and in other parts of the car. And there was a bloodstained handkerchief and tissues in the offside door pocket. That's the passenger side door pocket. There's also a blood-stained scarf. Now, it's believed, I've read this in the newspapers, that John Jick was susceptible to suffer from nosebleeds. But that's a lot of blood. If he'd been driving and had a sudden nosebleed, well, he'd put those tissues in the driver's side compartment, not the passenger side compartment. It's quite difficult to do that if you're the driver. So... It appears that John Jick returned to the car after his assault, maybe to compose himself. But again, why are those things in the passenger side compartment, not the driver side compartment? And why leave your scarf there in the car? Because I've checked the weather for February the 1st, 1969. February 69 was a very cold, wintry month in the UK. A cold northerly would bring snow showers to many parts of the UK in the next few days. John Dick would take his scarf with him if he was walking off somewhere else, I think. But the Prince's landing stage at the pier head on the Saturday morning, well, that's a busy place. There are constant ferries coming across the Mersey, lots of people milling around. It's not a quiet place to throw yourself in the water. Any suicide attempt would be spotted and a body recovered quickly. Of course, police believed John Jick to be alive afterwards. They were asking him to come forward in the months ahead. And of course, there's that sighting of him a couple of months later. But the options really are threefold. Either John Jick died that day, but his body's never been recovered. Either at the hands of his assailants or by his own hand. Secondly, he vanishes into his network, using that network to help and survive. Maybe he's listening to this podcast now, having a chuckle to himself. He'd be a very, very old man though, but it's a possibility that he survived years and years and years in a different guise. But thirdly, there's the option that he died later, but in different circumstances. And I'm going to try to explore these different options further. Maybe try to understand what the support structures might have been for a gay man in trouble in Liverpool in 1969. But that's all for next time. So until next time, have a good one.
The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.